This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Season 2 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I will discuss the legacy of former German Chancellor Angela Merkel and how she took action for anti-racism by welcoming brown, black, and Islamic refugees into Germany while other EU countries would not. I will also welcome in ARC member Carolyn Druna to share her perspective as a member of the EU and German citizen on the war in Ukraine and Merkel's legacy and impact on anti-racism. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform and practice and spread anti-racism. Now this begins with our process for personally transforming yourself to be anti-racist. First, it encompasses erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. Then second, educating yourself about anti-racism. And third, building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and make positive change happen. Now, over the last month, We've all witnessed the incredibly shocking and violent reality of the war in Ukraine. We all watched the buildup in rhetoric, then in troops, military weaponry on the Russian border to Ukraine, ordered by Russian President Vladimir Putin. We all mostly doubted that he actually would invade. We thought, you know, maybe this is a show of force. Somehow, maybe a mental game to get concessions from NATO, from the United States. Then he did the unthinkable. Shocking most of us by actually invading and waging war on the citizens of Ukraine. Not just the military. The everyday men, women even children, elderly, anyone. Many Ukrainians have stayed to fight for their country. But millions of women and children, elderly, have fled, seeking refuge. A refugee crisis in Europe has been created, not seen since the Middle Eastern and North African refugee crisis of seven years ago when civilians were fleeing ISIS and the Taliban and the wars in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The Ukraine war is sad. It's sad for Europe. It's sad for the world. 
It is sad and terrible for the Ukrainian people. It's frightening for the Ukrainian people. And it's frightening for Europe. And it's frightening for the world. It is an absolutely horrible, horrific situation. And our hearts certainly go out to the Ukrainian people. And we all want to help in any way that we can. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the humanitarian crisis that has followed illustrates three realities that I've noticed for myself. The first is of the cruel reality that power-hungry dictators don't discriminate. They will maul, kill, and rape anyone in their way to obtain power. Whether they look like them, whether their culture is the same or not. Power-hungry dictators don't discriminate. But number two, we see at the same time how this crisis has highlighted a European double standard in terms of who to help when innocents seek refuge from these power-hungry and cruel dictators. Those who look more and have cultures more similar to white Europeans versus those who don't. The so-called others. You see all the refugees fleeing the violence in Ukraine are being welcomed with open arms in several neighboring European countries. All except those who are black or brown or Muslim. Which leads to my third reality. It's very clear that the Ukrainian refugee crisis is being handled tremendously different from the Middle Eastern and North African refugee crisis of just seven years ago by every EU country in the region with the exception of one, Germany. Over 4 million and counting Ukrainians have fled their country to seek refuge in neighboring European countries. Countries like Poland and Romania have received millions of Ukrainian refugees and welcomed them with open arms, housing them, opening up their homes, giving them the food they need, the clothing they need, placing their kids in schools, playing with their children, helping them to forget the war atrocities that they left behind in Ukraine, treating them with dignity, care, and even love. Many of the people in these countries are saying things like, the Ukrainians are like us. They are good people, good people, who this evil guy Putin is attacking. They are refugees who are fleeing and, and running for their lives. The least that we can do is treat them like family, like our brothers. We must open our homes and our hearts to them. Compare this to the Middle Eastern and Af uh, North African refugee crisis where millions of brown and black people, almost all Muslims, were fleeing violence that was as cruel as Putin's assault. Many of these same countries across Europe closed their borders 
and crowded these refugees into camps like animals. Certainly not the treatment that one normally gives to family or to your brother. Instead of saying things like, these are good people like us, what was said was, these people are not like us. They're terrorists. They're criminals. They're not refugees. They're immigrants who come to take our jobs, take our services, live off of us for free, take over and destroy our country. They want to convert us to Islam. We don't want these others here. Many European leaders made public statements telling these other people who, again, they called immigrants, not refugees, even though they were fleeing for their lives from war and persecution, from certain death in many cases, to stop coming, that they were not welcome and there was no room for them. But the people, they were desperate. They were refugees. Their lives were on the line, just like the, the Ukrainians. They were fleeing for their lives, the lives of their children, the lives of their families. So these Middle Eastern and North African refugees, they kept coming. The tone across Europe started to move to a stronger and stronger sentiment of anti-immigrant, refusing to recognize them as political refugees, but instead characterizing them as opportunistic immigrants. See, that's an easier justification for anti-immigrant rhetoric, which really was anti-other rhetoric. However, there was one European leader who made the courageous decision to stand against this tide of anti-other rhetoric, against the tide of racism. That leader was German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Now, who's Angela Merkel? You know, I thought I knew. I think most of us, especially in the U.S., you have a perception of who Angela Merkel is, what she stood for. But clearly, I know I had simply a surface understanding. Fortunately for me, about a month ago, I happened to come across a PBS broadcast about Angela Merkel, chronicling the rise of Angela Merkel to the German chancellorship, her critically important role in leadership that she played in influencing both European and world history over the last 20 years. But also I was enlightened, so enlightened to learn something that's been underreported here in the U.S. about Angela Merkel. She has been a strong and courageous standard bearer for humanity and anti-racism. I didn't know that. I had to learn more. So let me recount what I learned about Angela Merkel. Let me recount her story from the beginning and then interlace that story with why I believe she is, she is such an important role model for anti-racism. Angela Merkel was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1954. Then that was in West Germany. But her family moved to communist East Germany as an infant. That's where she grew up, behind the Iron Curtain, part of the Soviet bloc. After growing up, 
Merkel obtained a doctorate in quantum chemistry in 1986 and worked as a research scientist in her field until 1989. However, that same year, Merkel decided to enter politics in the wake of the revolutions in Eastern Europe following the collapse of the Soviet Union. She briefly served as deputy spokesperson for the first democratically elected government of East Germany. Although you have to admit, Angela Merkel was never a charismatic leader, even back then, nor an engaging personality. She leveraged her incredible intellect, balanced with strategic insight and the ability to strategize and navigate politics and build political coalitions as her strengths. And these strengths were much, much more important than charisma and actually were accentuated and built greater respect because she did not show emotion or passion. And this allowed her to be viewed as logical and strategic and an intellectual focused on results, which was perfect for a woman navigating the male-dominated German culture and political landscape. The men didn't see her as a threat, but they grew to respect her. And following the reunification in 1990, Angela Merkel was elected to the Bundestag, or the German parliament for the state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. She became the protege of then-Chancellor Helmut Kohl, and this allowed Merkel to be appointed as Minister for Women and Youth. Not too out of place for a woman in German government. I'm sure the men thought that that's not so much of a threat. Then in 1994, she became Minister for the Environment, Nature Conservation, and Nuclear Safety. A logical placement for a quantum chemist, and maybe not so much of a threat to rise to the highest political power. But she continued to build respect. And after her party lost the 1998 federal election, Merkel was surprisingly elected as her party's general secretary, shockingly becoming her party's first female leader and the very first female leader of the opposition in Germany, in the Bundestag, only two years later. No one, no one saw this coming. But her quiet and highly intellectual style, humble but towering strength, began overpowering the gender-based reservations that many men had about a woman leader. And she ultimately started to become maybe a better choice to some men over their male rivals. Then on the 22nd of November 2005, history was made again as Angela Merkel assumed the office of Chancellor of Germany following a stalemate election that resulted in a coalition between her party and another party. And again, it was her humble and intellectual style that was the advantage and allowed her to be viewed as the candidate with the least resistance to her becoming leader of the new coalition party. 
The coalition deal was then approved by both parties at party conferences on the 14th of November 2005 and Merkel made history as the first woman elected chancellor of Germany by the majority of delegates. Even though 51 members of the governing coalition actually voted against her, she still became chancellor. Soon after assuming the chancellorship, it became clear to everyone who voted for her and those 51 who did not, and everyone in Germany, and everyone in the European Union, that Angela Merkel was the real deal. In Germany, her impact was felt immediately. Merkel focused on reducing unemployment and oversaw policy that resulted in unemployment sinking to new lows. Merkel's Energiewende program focused on phasing out nuclear power in Germany, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and increasing renewable energy. And she abolished military conscription by making the Bundeswehr, the armed forces of the Federal Republic of Germany, a volunteer military. Big, big, big accomplishments. And she quickly became the leader of the European Union on the world stage. In 2008, Merkel served as president of the European Council and played a central role in the negotiation of the Treaty of Lisbon and the Berlin Declaration, both helping solidify the commitment of member countries to the EU. Merkel played a crucial role in managing the EU through the global financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 and ensuring that the European debt crisis was handled effectively. She negotiated the 2008 European Union stimulus plan, focusing on infrastructure spending and public investment to counteract the Great Recession. She also served as the senior G7 leader from 2011 to 2012. And as an aside, she was also able to help keep Vladimir Putin in check. Putin tried to intimidate him, especially during her first visit to Russia. See, he thought, he thought that Angela Merkel was weak. And he didn't think there was any way she should be recognized as the leader of Europe. He thought she was overrated. And he heard that she had this real, real strong fear of dogs. So he decided that when she visited Russia for the first time, even though it was absolutely against protocol to have dogs sitting with the leaders of state. He decided to have his Rottweiler sit between himself and Angela Merkel for their very first meeting. But you know what? Angela Merkel knew she's a smart lady and she knew that Putin would try to do something to test her. She didn't know exactly what, but she knew there was something coming. So she prepared. She was ready for whatever Putin attempted. And no matter how close that dog came to her, she never once winced, wavered, hesitated whatsoever, proving to Putin she could not be intimidated. Now, after those types of results, after her courageous standing up to Vladimir Putin and proving the type of leader that she really, really was, 
her popularity grew in Germany substantially. In the election of September 2013, Merkel won one of the most lopsided and decisive victories in German history, achieving the best results for her party since reunification and coming with within only five seats, five seats of the first absolute majority in the Bundestag since 1957. The German economy continued to be one of the strongest in the world. She once again served as senior G7 leader. And in 2014, she became the longest serving incumbent head of government in the European Union. During her career up to this point, she had created a historic legacy in terms of achievements and firsts that had her legacy surely on the way to being one of the greatest leadership stories of the new millennium. Here are some of those firsts. She was her party's first female leader. She was the first female leader of the opposition in the German parliament. She was the first female chancellor of Germany. Merkel was the first German chancellor since reunification to have been raised in the former East Germany. She is one of the very few women to serve as senior leader of the G7, and she did it twice. During her tenure as chancellor, Merkel was frequently referred to as the de facto leader of the European Union, the first woman to be so viewed. Merkel was also viewed as the most powerful woman in the world for most of her tenure. After the 2016 election in the United States, she became the model for professional, rational, and intelligent leadership in the world, making a stark contrast to the other leaders of the most powerful countries at that time. She became viewed as the embodiment of liberty, justice, and humanity, and many viewed Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, as the leader of the free world, a term historically bestowed upon the President of the United States. There's no denying that by 2015, Angela Merkel was one of the most successful, respected, and powerful leaders in the world with an almost absolute majority in the German parliament of the Bundestag. However, something happened that changed all of this and put her once rock-solid legacy in real doubt. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC and join our movement. In early 2015, Middle Eastern and North African refugees, mostly brown and darker skinned people who also happen to be Muslim, began pouring into Europe at unprecedented numbers, quickly accelerating this situation into a crisis. The refugees were mostly from Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. People who were fleeing wars, tyrannical dictators, ISIS and the Taliban, conflict and violence all throughout the Middle Eastern region. There were horrific scenes from these countries of civilians who had been killed, stories of women being raped. There were terrible scenes of desperate people fleeing horrific war zones where civilians were being just killed and mauled in indiscriminate ways, mercilessly. 
People were trying to flee using rafts, walking hundreds of miles on foot through terrible conditions, anything they could do to get away. Many were women and children, but men as well, desperate to risk their lives to flee the conflicts in their home countries where they faced certain death, rape, subjugation, mutilation, you name it. Many of these fleeing people didn't make it. And the news broadcast scenes of bodies on shorelines from collapsed rafts and people dying on the roads leading toward Europe. Many European countries panicked at the sight of these mostly Islamic immigrants coming to Europe. The sympathy for the refugees suffering was not enough to overcome the nationalism, Islamophobia, and racism that began to take hold, and many European countries began closing their borders to what they called immigrants, not refugees. Those who did make it to the borders of European countries were turned away or herded in the camps with terrible conditions to keep them contained and segregated from the native population. As the European countries got tougher with denying entry and placing refugees in immigrant, immigrant camps, they sent messages to stop coming to Europe. But the numbers of people fleeing the Middle East and North Africa only increased and didn't appear to be stopping, creating even more of a crisis. More people at the borders, more people filling the camps. Terrible stories of inhumane treatment were reported. Conditions in camps, which were already bad, eroded even more, resulting in violence as some refugees unfortunately preyed on others for precious survival resources. Unscrupulous predators then began preying on desperate refugees, promising to smuggle them in to European countries, smuggle them across the borders for whatever money they could scrape together. This resulted in human trafficking and even mass death. There was one report of a refrigerated boxcar that was discovered in France with more than 60 refugees found dead. But even with these terrible tragedies, very few European countries would open their borders to the refugees. It was a terrible situation that didn't appear to have no way of getting better. No rectification was in sight. No light at the end of the tunnel. Then on August 31st, 2015, German Chancellor Angela Merkel made a fateful statement that I'm sure was simply common sense to her at the time. And maybe she didn't even see the explosive impact it would have, not only on this crisis, but on her and her career. It was a simple statement but it also ended up being one of the bravest and most impactful statements any major world leader has made in this century against bigotry, against hate, against prejudice, and for humanitarianism and for anti-racism because she backed it up with action. What were these words? 
Wir schaffen das, which translates into we'll manage this. In other words, Germany will figure this out. We will manage through this. We will take care of these refugees. Whether she was conscious of the impact of her simple statement or not, she quickly became aware of the magnitude and controversy her words created. There were many who said, yeah, she said, we'll manage through this, Verschaffen das. What she really means is the German people will have to sacrifice. They'll be the ones who have to deal with this. It's going to be something that's going to be bad for the German people. She said the words, but the German people will pay the price. But she didn't back down. In fact, she backed up her words with actions, proclaiming that Germany's doors were open. One million refugees entered Germany in a year, making Germany the country with the fifth highest number of refugees in the world. Over the next four years, 1.7 million people applied for asylum in Germany. The far-right movement in Germany rallied against Angela Merkel and were joined by other nationalist European Union movements and other world leaders who warned that Islam would rise and European countries would be faced with an Islamic takeover, that crime would rise massively in Europe, driven by those other people, and that ISIS would come into Europe quietly amongst the immigrants and then turn Europe into a terror zone. Almost immediately, there were terror attacks across Europe, with at least two major attacks taking place in Germany, all credited to ISIS. And crime, especially violent crime, did rise as the far right had warned. Merkel's Verschaffen das and her actions backing it up mobilized and further radicalized Germany's right-wing extremist circles who targeted asylum shelters with arson attacks and assassinated politicians with pro-immigration views. No other country in Europe saw as much severe and fatal right-wing violence in 2019 as Germany. To better manage the crisis and slow the flow of illegal immigrants, Merkel helped negotiate a deal between the EU and Turkey to stop the flow and focus only on those seeking legal entry and refuge. But by now, the damage had been done in the court of public opinion. And over the next two local election cycles, her party lost a significant number of seats. So Angela Merkel, clearly understanding that to the people of Germany, she was the problem for her party. She was the blame for the immigrant crisis. So she decided to not seek re-election to a record fifth term. Her fourth term would be her last. Then, when her popularity was at its all-time lowest point, an even more devastating crisis hit Germany and the world, the COVID-19 pandemic. And however, unlike many of the other leaders around the world at the time, Angela Merkel managed the COVID-19 pandemic extremely well from the beginning, leading Germany with her calm, strategic, intellectual focus to be patient, 
follow the protocols and as a result, not lose as much economically as most other G7 countries. And as the pandemic began to abate, be more under control as time wore on, it became clear that not only did Angela Merkel lead Germany to Wirtschaften das, or manage through the COVID crisis better than any other country, it also started to become very clear that her Wirtschaften das will manage through this regarding the refugee crisis or the so-called immigrant crisis for which she was blasted and blamed as a failure and was forced to ultimately step down for and not seek a fifth term was actually correct and was actually working out. The terror attacks that had rocked Germany early on had stopped and there has not been one since the rash of attacks across Europe and Germany in 2016. The spike in crime stopped and last year crime in Germany sank to an 18-year low. More than 10,000 people who arrived in Germany as refugees since 2015 have mastered the German language sufficiently enough to enroll in German universities. More than half of those who came as refugees of the 1.7 million who filed for refugee status are working and paying taxes. Among refugee children and teenagers, more than 80% say that they have a strong sense of belonging to their German schools and they feel liked by their peers. By the time she neared the end of her fourth term, her final term, that she decided she had to step down because of her unpopularity as German chancellor, the once de facto leader of Europe, the once leader of a country with the highest approval ratings, for a democratically elected leader. The one who was forced out for doing the right thing. The one who had been attacked by the media and in the court of public opinion for supposedly ruining Germany. The one blamed for the rise of the radical right in Germany. The one who was blamed for all these things all because she did the right thing and welcomed in the others to Germany. Angela Merkel had ultimately been redeemed and proven right. And the German people noticed and gave her credit. Her favorability ratings within Germany had returned to roughly where they had been at her all-time popular, around 80%. Germany as a country had exited the COVID crisis stronger than any other country. And although the country still has struggles internally with immigrants, the overall situation is trending to be more toward United Germany than America is toward being a United States. And with her success of both managing the COVID crisis and ultimately the refugee crisis by doing the right thing, she returned to her de facto position as leader of not only Europe, but leader of the free world. Yes, the leader of Germany represented justice and humanity for all, not only for the we, not only for the us, but also for the them and for the others. 
This seemingly unpassionate, unemotional, statuesque Angela Merkel, who many nicknamed Muti because of her conservative appearance and the language she used, which was similar to a highly respected but strict mother. She broke from her measured way and went against political expediency. She risked her career and her legacy to say and do the right thing when many other leaders stayed quiet and did nothing. Through her words and through her actions, she proved herself to be a passionate anti-racist. And this is perfectly captured in the following quote that I'm going to I'm going to say that Merkel gave during the International Women's Day a few years ago when she was speaking about anti-racism and anti-hate and Germany's responsibility to be a leader in this area because of its history of racism, because of the horrors of the Holocaust and because of its instigation of two world wars. Merkel said this, we must never forget and actively create a new reality for Germany from persecutor number one in the world to the leading refuge for those who are persecuted. Angela Merkel stood in the face of criticism. She lost her popularity, lost her once rock solid legacy as one of the greatest leaders of this century, male or female. She suffered personal threats. She was blamed for hate groups, gaining power in her country and even blamed for those terrorist attacks. And yet, as I said, she still did the right thing. And on the world stage at the highest level, Angela Merkel proved her mettle by standing up and speaking out in her controlled and understated way. Some would say even unpassionate way with Verschaffen Das. But most importantly, she took passionate and determined action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate. In the next segment, we will welcome in one of ARC's founding members and our first director of marketing, my great friend Carolyn Drunat, a German citizen, who will share her perspective on the impact of Angela Merkel, Verschaffen Das, the situation in Germany and Europe, and why she is so passionate about ARC's mission to create a racism-free world. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. All right, welcome back to the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In the first segment, I talked a lot about what's happening in Europe with the uh, the current Ukraine war. Um and the impact that Angela Merkel has had in Europe uh, over the last 20 years. And I mentioned that I'll be welcoming in Carolyn Drunat. And Carolyn uh, is one of the people who helped start ARC. Carolyn is a board member for ARC, but she also was one of the very first people that I called to ask for help in getting the ARC organization going. She was our first marketing director. She helped build our overall plan to launch the organization. And I am so happy to call her a friend. And I'm extremely excited to have Carolyn join us today 
and share her very unique perspective on what's happening in Europe right now, but even more importantly, the impact of former Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, on the world, on Germany, and on Europe. Caroline, thank you so much for joining. How are you today? Hello, Donza, and thank you very much for inviting me to this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm doing much. fine. Excellent. It's good to hear. And, and the family's doing well also. All family members doing well. So from the biggest one to the smallest one, everybody's doing fine. Yeah, so my name is uh, Caroline Druna, as you mentioned. I'm, I have a French name, so as you can hear, so bonjour pour, uh, pour le, l'écouteur français. Et hallo zu allen Deutschen, die auch zuhören oder die Sprache sprechen. Donzel, I'm happy that we have the chance to talk together in this very strange and, and weird times. So a bit about myself. So um, I'm living in the south of Germany. Um, I'm speaking French due to my family history. My father is coming from France. My mother is German. Um, so I'm really grown up between both countries and I'm very happy to to have that chance to live between different countries and learn about different perspectives, uh, religion, um, culture and everything around. So currently uh, I'm living here having a maternity leave as uh, we welcomed our second child to the family in January this year. So little Felix is now about two months and uh, the big sister Anna is now two years old. And my husband is living here in Freiburg, so we are living very close to three countries based in Germany, one kilometer to the French border and only 30 to Switzerland. Makes us very happy to be in the in the middle of Europe, as you can see. Well, congratulations on uh, on little Felix uh, and, and of course, Anna, uh, who I think is two years old now. And, uh, you know, you obviously very, very busy. Um, with a busy household. Uh, so we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And I remember meeting you for the first time, I want to say in 2019. I want to say it was over the summer uh, when a friend of mine and I and a colleague took a trip to Germany and uh, we got to meet you for the first time. And, and ever since then, we've just continued to build our friendship. But I remember you telling me the unique perspective that you've had, and you, you mentioned it briefly, um, of uh, both being French and being German and experiencing Europe. Maybe you could tell us a couple things that are unique about about that experience growing up in Germany, being having families in both uh, France and Germany and what that how that has helped shape you. Yes, of course, of course. So I think that the biggest thing what I what I what I learned about being um, being grown up between two countries and two different cultures is that everyone asked me, what country did you travel to? Uh, how far did you go? And I was saying, well, nearly I never moved out of Europe. And then everybody's looking at me like, why? Yes, because I do have families overall Europe. And then you spend your time with your family and you're not traveling all over the world because you just have one time the time to travel. And if you need to decide, often you decide to see your family and not to moving so far away. And there I recognize that the situation is quite different to that. And also the experience of celebrating the same um, the same things. Christmas is the same, but it's so different in both countries. And whenever I explain to the other side what I'm doing, 
in one country what I'm celebrating this year, the others are smiling and learning and listening because it's so different. And this makes me also thinking about we're so close here in Europe, but we have so many little differences, which makes it great. And so we, we try to um, to live both sides. And when I was, I think, beginning of 20 years, something around, I was coming back from a very long trip with my French friends on holiday and I had like I was homesick. I was crying being back in Germany. And there I noticed that the the French side in my heart is so much stronger than I ever thought that I was not happy that time being back in my home. Mm, wow. Very, very, very interesting perspective. And you know, with with both France and Germany, very different countries, as you mentioned, very different cultures. And there's a, there's a perception certainly about both outside, but a very strong perception about Germany outside of Germany um, because of the two world wars, because of the history of, of Germany. Um, and I remember when I was there in 2019, you encouraged me to go and learn. Um, and, and one of the places I went was the uh, I think it's called the the the, uh, the document center. Um, and uh, you mentioned you said, hey, you should go there um, and learn about what happened um, leading up to World War II. Uh, and you were telling me that, um, you know, it'll help you kind of get a better understanding of what happened, but also uh, change perceptions of, of Germany in that people here want to learn about this. They have to learn about this. Uh, and so maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, sort of, you know, the the, the unique perspective of, of kind of the, you know, how Germany has tried to, at least the people have tried to offset that history and that perception but that racism does still exist in some shapes and forms. Maybe you can talk to us about the importance of recognizing that and trying to continue to learn about its past. Sure, of course. Um, so let me start into my own education. Um, I will let you know that both of my my grandparents, even from France or in Germany, were teaching me that it's important to be tolerant, to to be open and equal, to to look on on every person as a person and not judging about about color, about race, about religion or something. So I think this is where where my parents meet each one when they are younger, even more complicated and new for Europe, having a connection between two countries in that time. Um, also, then I I now is when I'm a bit, bit older seeing that the whole education in Germany is teaching us uh, everywhere um, about the history and that uh, Germany has a special role and also responsibility of um, whenever whatever happened, we are responsible. And this is that what we have to to fight for, that that what happened in Germany, especially in the Second World War, is is cruel. It is it is bad. It is absolutely we should not forget. We should not um, we have to see, we have to highlight and we have to remember ourselves that that ha never happened again. And also that still we as uh, the, the next or over next generation of that, we are still responsible for changing mindset and we have to, um, to, to practice and to live with that history about ourselves and about Germany. And so we had in every subject at school, um, we had to deal with the topic about the Second World War and the special role Germany had and also that we are responsible for, for most of that um, over years and also through every class trip, through every um, 
possibility where we, we can talk and we can highlight because there are so many different uh, things uh, what what we should not forget and where Germany has a special role educating themselves and also the others around, um, your friends, your network, your families, in highlighting and taking care for ourselves and for, for the others, especially now during the situation in Ukraine, um, all the refugees uh, that we have a role to help. Yeah, that, that's uh, you know an important point. I'm, I'm going to get to that, uh, the piece around Ukraine in a second. Uh, and, uh, and we also want to talk about Angela Merkel. One follow-up question I have to, to this area, though, is I don't know if you're familiar, but in the U.S. right now, in the United States, uh, there's a movement in which many states are starting to pass laws um, to censor teachers um, in, in public education in schools from teaching anything that could hurt the feelings of students. In other words, uh, you can't teachers can't teach about racism if the racism shows that, for instance, um, you know, for a hundred years, four hundred years, there was slavery. Of, of African uh, Americans, and then another hundred years after that, there was, uh, you know, very very uh, strict segregation laws, cruelty. People were hanged uh, and lynched and terrorized, uh, and they can't teach this because it potentially will hurt the feelings of white students. Um, and so it's basically trying to erase that history, which seems to be the exact opposite of what Germany is trying to do in their schools. Uh, do you think this is a dangerous path that the United States is going down and why? Of course, it's dangerous because I think it is it is part of the history of the country where you're living. And there is also a big part into the community, especially talking about the racism topic in U.S. that hurt the black community of this society. And it is not the right to hurt even then what has been hurt over hundred of years. I mean, there's the, it needs to be equal. And if somebody makes something wrong, then you need to talk about to avoid the, the mistake a second time. And you need to teach the next generation what happened and why the situation is so complicated to avoid to do the same again. And so I think this is something about being open, transparent and to educate kids in the right way. So you do the same thing with your kids at home. When they do something wrong, you talk with them about the problem and then you try to help them to avoid doing the same this next time. And also you try to teach them to to look about everybody's feelings around. So when they hurt a friend and the friend is crying, then you need to teach your children that they need to empathize. Why is the, the friend crying about their behavior? And it's not okay to just close your eyes and saying, oh, we're protecting the white kids. Yeah. You're hurting the black kids and they are equal. So where is the difference? There is no difference. And this is a, this is a big thing where I think it's it's not good. And I can tell you 16 years of visiting the concentration camp of Theresienstadt and preparing uh, a 30 minute, um, uh, we, we say it's a, it's briefing about that, what happened um, from, from our, let's say literary and book experience about that and talking to your classmates about this. Mm -hmm. and nobody was, was laughing or having fun that day. Everybody was like uh, shocked and, yes. and 
trying and of course it is a very hard subject we're talking about but it is good and of course um, you have to, to be careful about the age you're talking with the kids about the topic but you have to because it's important to remember what happened and we cannot close our eyes. I, I really hope that this is one of the most listened to podcasts that we've ever published because what you just said is so very powerful so very powerful and so very true. And I think for anyone listening, it would be a wake-up call because it's, I do agree with you. It's very dangerous to try to whitewash history and pretend it didn't happen. Um, it allows for the repeat of that to be much more likely. Uh, and there's no reason why we should allow that to happen. It's one of the reasons why I think we're facing what we're facing in Ukraine right now. Uh, but uh, let me let me get to Angela Merkel because Angela Merkel because I, I think that um, it, I, you know it's just very it was very surprising to me to learn more about her. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I obviously knew who she was highly respected leader. Um, I saw as a very um, uh, scientific, methodical, um, strategic, unemotional leader who was very focused on economics and order and things of that nature, but really not a people leader, but, uh, you know, very much a strategic, uh, highly thoughtful leader, analytical leader. And I, I saw a, a special on her about a month and a half, two months ago, um, where I learned so much more about her and how she has been such a big, big influence leader when it comes to um, to people. A lot of things you just talked about in terms of changing Germany's perception of the world. But um, what what currently is the perception of, of Angela now that she's been out of office for uh, several months um, in Germany? And and I'd like to hear your thoughts, not even so much on her as, as we I talk about her as an anti-racist, and we'll talk more about why I feel that. But what impact has she had on women in Germany? Um, on the view that women leaders, um, you know, are powerful. Um, and, and what impact has she had on you and your thought process as a, as a female leader in Germany? It's a, it's a long question, but it's a good <laughs> question. So let, let's start maybe, uh, she was like over 16 years, our leader in Germany, and there's a whole generation never had seen another person leading Germany as that woman. And that's something what we need to understand. And um, this gives the generation behind the feeling that we're quite strong and open society. But the, she was the first one. And that's something what we need to understand, especially she was coming from the east of Germany. And this is something very special. Yes. When she started her career, she was like um, an unexpected person for the the leading of the CDU and also for uh, the position of the councillor and uh, she made it and she she surprised every man into her party mm -hmm. to be honest because nobody had her in mind nobody thought that the people in Germany would elect somebody like her because she's not she's not like looking like a superhero a glamming she's not wearing high heels no. she is definitely not a show, show star. She is brilliant. She had somebody in something in her mind. She has a character. And I think um, especially the, the, 
the all the old men in Germany, because Germany is a very men focused society yes. when we're talking about career and jobs and and leading. They, they learned a lot and this was good. We opened up the minds in Germany for changing the mindset. And what she also was fighting for, which is interesting, is a quote. Germany needs a quote for having women in leading position in the industry. That's crazy, but we need it because it's not working from alone. And that's not because Germany has not enough good women um, with, with a great mindset and aid to work. This is because of the structure of the society, very conversative, very old. And that's good that we are in this change process. So I think everybody had a mind like a good leader over years. And that what she was coming with the emotional side sharing in 2019, when she said to all of Europe and the world, wir schaffen das means we can do it to help and to, uh, to open our doors and the borders for the like nearly a million people from Syria the refugees where nobody in Europe wants to help, nobody wants to take him, nobody wanted to get them the chance for a normal life without war. And I think this was one of the the, the things in her career, in her past, where this is win everything or lose everything. And she she won a lot because she did the right thing. She, she helped the people. And I know also from my friends network, that so many of them um, started to make uh, German courses to help translation, really? to help with the integration, wow. um, opening up their, freeing up their time. So a friend of me is a teacher for German. She giving classes and courses for teaching German to them. And another is uh, do, working in the social area. So she helped uh, two hours every week for um, all the, the 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 work you need to, to ask for a job, to you ask for a home, or you put your kids at school, whatever was needed. So I have so many good examples where people were like enthusiastic to help to integrate and to support the Syrian people, and this was good. That what shocked me that time is so many European countries, especially from east of Europe, were saying no, we don't want to help, we don't want to take um people from syria we we don't want to accept so they they were happy to to open up for 200 people so what is 200 people like we are in, in europe we have all capacity for help more and it is not equal and i, I i'm very proud that in germany we more and i feel like we cannot leave a single person on the street but it, it shocked me that time to see around that others were not doing the same as Germany did that time. And what she also made with that is, of course, we have some, some trouble. Like, I don't know if AFD is a like, um, pro-right oriented party. Yes. Getting, getting up that time and growing, getting stronger and defending Germany again against the others. The others means everybody who is not looking like German, what, but what is what is German? I mean, if a German looks at me, they think they're German. If the French are looking at me, they think I'm French. <laughs> and nobody mentioned that I'm neither one or the other. So what what is really German? So but they, I believe they don't know what they are fighting for. I, I believe they, they have fear, they have no idea what they're talking about, because if they would be in the same situation, lost everything what they have, what they love, they would be happy if somebody else would give them a hand to help. 
and to support. But this is the situation what we have, especially in the east of Germany. There are a lot of people now getting out of the streets and defending um, Germany against the, the others, the refugees coming into. And this is, of course, not something what we can accept. So, of course, um, since 2015, we have this movement as well in Germany, and we have to be careful that these people uh, with their voice and their mindset not getting stronger to educate and to open up and to remind ourselves that they are people they don't accept and they are not tolerant and they can destroy uh, a whole society with their mindset. Wow, yeah, that's I'm not even sure how to follow everything you just said uh, and, and put it in a context except to just say, um, you know, for anyone again who's not, who has not learned a lot about what's, you know, how Angela Merkel leads, the impact she's had. Um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, please share it. Uh, please ensure your friends are listening uh, to this because it's it's really a true and incredible story of what leadership can be. You don't have to be a flashy. You don't have to be the person who gives the most fiery speeches. You don't have to be the person who dresses the most uh, uh, fancy. Um, but you have to have character. You have to have character and you have to have courage. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if Angela Merkel understood at the time as chancellor when she said Vishafan Das, what impact that would have, how it would fire up people on the right, like you said, to, to, to fight against her, that it would have such a big um, you know, negative impact on her popularity. As you said, there were people who rose to support her and, and you know, gave... Uh, German lessons and all of these things, but it did it did ignite a fire under the people in the far right, just like what happened in the United States after the first African-American president was elected. Um, it, it increased the right and they've continued to grow. The difference in Germany is after that first several years where the, the far right was growing, uh, Angela Merkel and her, her party were able to stem the tide of that growth. It's still there, but after gaining a bunch of seats in, I think it's called the Bundestag, the uh, the, the parliament, um, you know, the, the, the far right has now lost some seats. And and before she retired, her popularity kind of was restored. Um, what do you think has been different? Was it really just her handling of COVID-19 crisis? Uh, or was it, was it something else that also, after she opened the doors to millions of, of immigrants, millions of the others... Uh, and the far right was starting to rise. Why do you think Germany is one of the few countries that's been able to stem the tide of this far right uh, and not allow them to take over the government as, as much as they've done in other parts of the world? It's also a very long question again, but I tried to put together. So um, let's start by um, what was driving her. Interesting, because I've just seen an interview with her, a fresh one, where the same uh, question has been asked to her. And she answered that she never thought about the impact, the negative impact that might have. She said in that situation, it was not a strategic, a political decision she made. It was just driven by humanity. She was just saying it is important to help the people. It was just an emotional decision, what she made as a counselor stand to her character, to stand to the humans who are lost in, in war, everything what they had. And 
this is very interesting and important to understand that the most powerful woman of the world from one of the most powerful countries, Germany is very small, but still very powerful, that somebody leading such a country was able to decide based on her heart and making the right decision to help people and not saying strategically, um, are we able to make how many how how many euros do we cost that situation? Um, she was not counting the euros before. She was saying we need to help, and there is a way because we are one of the strongest uh, societies, and we do have enough resources to make it. It can't be uh, the situation that we cannot help. Everybody can help. Thank you, thank you, Carolyn, uh, for again providing unique perspective. That, that was a difficult question, but. It, I felt like it had to be asked. And, you know, one other one, and you mentioned this earlier, um, this the others, right? The mostly brown and black folks that were immigrating or seeking refuge is better the, the better question from places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Levant area of the Middle East and North Africa um, were viewed as the others, mostly from Islamic countries as well. Uh, but we also noticed that after this, terrible invasion um, by, by Putin and Russia into Ukraine. Um, millions of, of people have been seeking refuge out of Ukraine as well. So the second big image immigrant crisis or refugee crisis in Europe in the last decade and uh, in several countries, Poland being probably the number one in terms of taking refugees from Ukraine. Many people have opened their homes. Uh, many people have found ways to get Ukrainian children in schools, helping get people jobs, giving them their own food to eat besides just jobs and, 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 and their homes, just being open citizens of the world saying, welcome to our country. Um, you're here. And I'm sure there's some areas where it's not so good, but most of the reports we're seeing uh, are that Ukrainians are being welcomed and, and pitied in, in several of these uh, Eastern European countries, with the exception of if they're brown or black. Uh, that that those folks and there are many students that have been that were in the Ukraine studying that were from African countries, Middle Eastern countries, Asian countries, um, others that were living there, and they have been detained in many of these countries. They have been treated differently in many of these countries. And, and of course, we know that during the the crisis uh, five, six, seven years ago, it was similar. You mentioned it that several European countries would refuse to take people um, if they got into their border. They would put them in camps that were very tight, a lot of uh, uh, desperation and crime, things of that nature. Um, what, what, uh, what is your thought on um, what we're seeing and, and what do you think is going to have to change in Europe for, for these attitudes of us versus them or the others um, to change as well? Yeah, what I, what I mentioned as well, but for me, it was also very strange to see that uh, mostly the Eastern European countries refused in 2015 refugees from Syria. And I'm happy and I was very surprised how open they are um, with the, the people coming from Ukraine. What we're hearing um, a lot of times um, is that the people in Poland, especially where 90% of the refugees from Ukraine are going to, is that they feel like these are our brothers. Mm. So I think there is not the big difference in the culture. There's not the big difference. Um, what you can obviously see by another skin color or religion or something different. 
And of course, due to the that's very close, that often really families are living like me over the two countries, it makes it easier for them to feel like these are our brothers and we need to help. And what I think is really that these there at the moment 10 million people, refugees all over Ukraine and 2.5 million moving out of Ukraine, 90% of them going to Poland, that now Poland is encouraged. And now the people learn that they can help, that they can do it. And not it is not a question about skin, color, religion, or something different. So we need to see what we have in common. And now they learn that they are also able to provide help, that they are it should encourage them whenever we have a, a bad situation again, and I hope it's not coming so soon, but we never know that they will learn about this very good movement um, that they are able to support. And I will not, I, I hope that we will never see that whenever people with another skin color or something or another religion or other culture a bit closer than 200 kilometers away mm -hmm. need help, that they are closing their borders again. So I hope that they are encouraged with that, what they do, that they are able and capable and friendly and good people, because that what they're saying is, these are our brothers, our sisters, this is our family, these are our neighbors, we have to help. And I, I hope that this good power will stay and also will we'll keep going whenever somebody else needs help. Wow, thank you again, uh, fantastic uh, learning for everyone listening to the podcast. And I do want to go back and talk about the fact that uh, you were one of the first people that I called uh, when when we when I started the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition and I asked you for help. Uh, and, uh, and you very, very quickly uh, jumped in, got involved, joined the organization and took on leadership roles to help get the organization off the ground. Um, what is being a part of ARC meant to you? Obviously, similar to what you just talked about in terms of what Germany is trying to do under uh, the past chancellor's leadership. Hopefully that continues creating this new reality, um, you know, in, in trying to be erase the past instead of being, I think Angela Merkel called it persecutor number one uh, to being, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the leading place for those who need to seek refuge. Um, who are being persecuted, that that's what, what she had talked about. So, you know, at ARC, obviously we want to create a, a racism-free world. And um, so you, you had, you've had a very major role in the organization um, and helped us get to where we are. What has being a part of ARC meant to you? Um, how, how has it helped you? Um, and, and why would you recommend joining or becoming a part of ARC to others? Thank you, Donzo. So I think I was I was really honored to to be to be asked to be part of that organization. And that's something what I want to to drive by heart is to to work because we are not at the end because we see that there is racism. We see that people are against the others, whatever this means. So I think every country has its own history, has its own problems with with, with racism. Depends on on the different setting. In Germany, it's maybe against the brown black people, Islamic based or uh, Jewish people. In the US, it's mostly more about the slave history. Uh, in France, it's more about the Arabic people. Every country has its own problems. And I believe whenever, wherever we look to, we will find the same hate and the same fight against the others and think that that must stop. 
because we just the one world we just humans and we have to be more tolerant and that's what i what i really love to do and that's why i i think it's so important to continue the work with art to follow to support and to grow the network is that we understand that everywhere racism exists depends on the expression of where and what it is, but it exists everywhere. And we need to fight to be more tolerant and to accept each other to have a more friendly um, and peaceful world. Now, you're a mother to married career woman. You have a lot going on that you're trying to manage. Um, so you, you know, you're, you're not uh, someone who has tons of time on their hands and, and, and all this. You've, you've, you've got to fit in anything you're trying to do extra as part of, of, of your, your life. Um, so you're an everyday person who's trying to deal with this. How have you been able to dedicate the time to helping lead ARC, uh, but also just to spread anti-racism within your personal network, uh, you know, in, in Germany or with your family in Germany and or France? What, what, what types of things are you doing personally? Yeah, I, I think, of course, I'm, I'm pretty busy in my role as mother now. And definitely now I understand uh, how much free time I had before. Um, because if, you, if the time is gone, then you you know what 30 minutes in your life can be. Um, but I think whenever the kids are sleeping, the, do I really need to clean the windows? Or is there something more significant I can do? So this is a very simple question to me. And sometimes, of course, then... Uh, they are less important things. They need to wait that I get some free time to do the right thing. And I mean, I don't care that time for window cleaning. So there, I think it, it's more important to do something where I can educate myself. I can be a positive role and a good mother also educating my kids one time. Of course, now they're still small, but I want them to be good persons. And I am also spreading the, the message of ARC to all of my friends. And when I see uh, how many listeners of the podcast we have on ARC from time to time, because I'm sending out on Instagram and sharing um, the, the the file, then I'm happy because then I know they will do the same. So uh, they will listen, they will think about, and whenever there is a discussion with uh, where a strong position is needed, then they know that they know about to tell the right thing and to stand up and don't be afraid. Thank you so much. What what a great message. And, and um, uh, again, I, I just can't express to the audience how thankful I am uh, for uh, my friendship with Carolyn, but for for her to be sharing these really rich learning lessons for us, for many of us who uh, um, are part of ARC or who listen to the podcast, a, a large majority are in North America, a large majority in the U.S., Gaining this perspective is, is just it's extremely unique uh, for us. Is there is there a single message that you'd like to leave the audience with, Carolyn? It was a very hard topic to talk about. Uh, this episode of the podcast is uh, is not a is not an easy one, I would say, especially with with all that war coming so close here in Europe. Um, but I want to. I want to finish this with a with a little smile giving to all of us and looking forward to a more friendly and tolerant world. And I taking the just a deep breath and smiling and saying goodbye to you and hoping to see you or hearing you listen to the next podcast on the journey of ARC. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Carolyn, uh, for for everything. Uh, again, I just want to let people know Carolyn was one of the original people uh, to join me in getting the organization Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition off the ground. Uh, Carolyn uh, took it upon herself to help build, uh, partnering with several others, our initial uh, plan to launch the organization and build awareness around the world. And Carolyn was doing much of this while she is in Germany and most of the team was in the U.S. So she was dealing with time zone issues and staying up late uh, and, and working odd hours to fit in um, all the important work that we needed to get done. Um, so if there was one person I could tell you that showed true commitment um, in the face of having a very busy life, as she mentioned, um, you know, a, a mother, with young children, uh, a career, uh, all sorts of things happening, uh, but finding a way to say, this is so important. Um, even if the initial work that ARC was doing was based in the U.S., she still saw it as important to be a part of that and to then help bring that message back to Germany and find a way to, to make messages unique and applicable for folks in Europe. And I just want to thank you, Carolyn, uh, from the bottom of my heart for everything you have done to get this organization off the ground. And I want to thank you on my behalf and behalf of the audience for sharing your very unique and powerful perspective on anti-racism um, and the need for it in Europe uh, and the role that, that Angela Merkel has played in terms of a role model for women, a role model for men and what women can do and should be expected to do, and a role model for all of us on what anti-racism needs to look like across the European continent and the world. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And as you said, I can't wait to see you again and uh, and hear all the great feedback on this podcast that I, I, I'm saying is, is one of the, the most special and most powerful that we've done. So thank you. And you take care, Carolyn. Thank you, Donald. Take care. Visit us at joinarc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or Arc, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about ARC, donate to our cause, and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.